Take a seat. Let's, uh, would you bow your heads with me as we open the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, we just sang for your glory, and we would not be here without your work on the cross, Jesus, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for drawing us to the Father who desires a family. I thank you for this church family. Lord, I desire that you be glorified in this sermon and that you would speak through me, removing myself from the equation, to bring glory to the Father, for he alone is worthy of all of our praise and all of our glory. We thank you for this beautiful day. But most importantly, we thank you for calling us into fellowship with you and with your Son and with your Spirit. And I pray that we would know a more intimate, deep fellowship as we walk with you the days of our lives. Now may your church be edified this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Get your Bibles out, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Verses 2 through 4, Matthew 6, 2 through 4. We're going to continue our series on kingdom devotion. Remember, recall in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus dealt kind of with our relationships and saying that the standards that they were used to didn't meet his kingdom standards. And now he's going to address their religious practices. And he attacks their hypocrisy in verse 1. In verses 2 through 4, he talks about their giving. I look back, I think it was 2017 was the last time I spoke on giving. Typically, I do a one sermon a year on giving just as a reminder for us, just to keep it before us, of the importance of giving within religion. So Jesus addresses this issue, and we'll look into this passage and reasons why he's doing it this morning. But this is what he says. So when you give to the poor... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Pretty straightforward. But... I want to talk to you about what a section that I call Scrooge Lives. This was taken from a, uh, it's a 2008 uh, article from Christianity Today. Before I do that, I want to go back, oh, oh my goodness, almost 30 years ago. I graduated from college in 1992. I am that old. My body tells me that every day. Um, but when I graduated from college in 1992, and I joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, um, after my five weeks of training in San Bernardino, California, that was my first time to the West Coast. I will never forget a, a memorable five weeks I was there. We had two earthquakes, a 7.4 and a 6.8. They were called a gentle giant. Only one person was killed in all of that. And I've told you a story about me and being in Diamond Bar, California, when the first earthquake occurred in you know, how, what that was like, and just eerie the sound that Hollywood can make when they recreate that sound of everything shaking. It, it does sound just like that. 
It's odd being able to look out your window during an earthquake and to see the pool going like this. Like you put a glass of water and just doing this, that's kind of what it looks like. Um, and then the aftershocks all that time. It actually rained for part of that summer, which was rare in California. And so for a few days, I got to see L.A. That was it, because the next few days, the smog filled up, and it was a blur again. I was introduced to like the, the smog alerts for the exercise and, and all of that and so on. But after my five weeks of training in California, I was sent home, and I immediately began my fundraising for my missions work. And of course, I was trained by, actually, I think it's some of the best training for religious fundraising in other ministries during that week of fundraising training would come and visit and get this training. But I made calls to friends and family members and networked around the Chardon, Ohio region, visiting potential donors. My progress was steady, but it was slow. But that all changed when my family moved to Hudson, Ohio, a far more wealthy and affluent area. And as I networked through a series of contacts, my fundraising kicked into overdrive. Now, I was asked, or I was trained to ask for one, two, three, or four dollars a day, or whatever amount you could give in my fundraising. So I'd make phone calls, set up appointments, go meet with them at their homes, or for breakfast or for lunch, give my presentation, share my testimony, and so on, and then ask for, for donations, and then also ask for more contacts. Of course, that's one, two, three, or four dollars a day. So it's what, 30, 60, 90, or 120 dollars a day, or whatever money you can give. Now, while that may not seem like much today, you gotta go back to 1992 dollars, it was more than it is today, to say the least, okay? But I noticed a few things as I engaged in my fundraising. People usually, number one, people usually opted for the one dollar a day amount. Even though they could clearly afford more. A human nature seemed to draw them to the lowest dollar amount commitment. Number two, in Hudson, Ohio, as I met with prospective donors in their homes, I noticed that their homes were huge and they were usually decorated with high-end appliances and furniture. I cannot tell you the difference. It would be the difference between perhaps Auburn and Bellevue. Does that help? Auburn is, 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 is nice, but you know, you have five hundred, six hundred thousand dollar homes. Bellevue, you're in the million dollar range, and so much, much bigger homes uh, in in the more affluent Hudson, Ohio area. Yet, despite clearly being blessed by God, and I'm meeting you obviously with believers, okay. Yet, despite being clearly blessed by God with ample financial resources, most still chose to give no more than a dollar a day. And oftentimes, those people that were giving, you know, a dollar a day or three dollars a month, in their giving, they would fail to keep their promised pledge amount. So I'd have to contact them after I'd reported to my assignment, and they just were inconsistent in that. Now, realizing that they could afford more, the third point I noticed is that I began to just ask for a hundred dollars a month. That was when my fundraising skyrocketed, and within a few months, I had reached my goal. But yet, a surprising number of donors, or potential donors, who lived in, in, in luxurious homes, they often declined to support me financially at all. 
And I could only conclude that taking as a whole my experience of fundraising was this in regards to my estimation of Christians. For the most part, they're pretty stingy. Now you fast forward to a sermon series that I taught in 2010 called Act Your Wage. Act Your Wage. And of course, this was at the church in, in Indiana where we were doing, I, did, I think I did three capital campaigns and you know, we needed money for the building campaign, the building fund, and so, um, yeah. But this series was called Act Your Wage. So I reported there in March of 2009. In 2010, I'm doing this first sermon series I've ever done on giving called Act Your Wage. And it further cemented my experience about Christians and giving. Now, well, as church gave, don't get me wrong, but in a December 2008 Christianity Today article entitled Scrooge Lives, this is where I got this information from. So this is the data I'm about to share with you is 13 years old. It's by Rob Mall. I just rediscovered what I had already experienced in my fundraising days, that the money is there. In other words, here are just some statistics. You can see these from that 2008 article. One out of four American Protestants give no money at all, not even a token $5 a year. 36% of evangelical Christians give less than 2% of their income. That's the baseline now. Because what we do, and this is how you've probably understood the giving to be, you're supposed to give your tithe, and you know I've railed on tithing here before. The tithe is not the standard. It's grace giving, we'll get into that later. But 10% is, is, is the bottom line, and then that's your offering, okay? That's your tithe. Then your offering is anything above and beyond that, okay? But what they're saying here is that a third of evangelical Christians, and these are the, use the word evangelical, it's gonna be someone that's more committed to, to Christ and to the church, they're giving less than 2% of their income. And I'm not big on percentages, as you know. 27% of those who call themselves evangelicals tithe, and of course the tithe being what? 10%. And 5% of American Christians provide 60% of the money churches religious groups use to operate. One of the things I, I discovered in my fundraising now is again referred to the same people, the same circle of friends, okay, because they were the people that were giving even though these churches you know, were packed with people. But what really struck me was the incredible wealth of evangelical Christians. Now, by evangelical Christians, I mean those who say their faith is very important to them and they attend church twice a month. Now, this group of evangelical Christians, by the way, check this out, earn more than $2.5 trillion a year. And that's in 2008 numbers. One, or on their own, this group of Christians would be admitted to the G7, the group of the world's seven largest economies. And if these Christians would give just 10%, they would add another $46 billion to fund ministries worldwide. Now, I am not, this purpose of the sermon is simply to go over the, the text and give a general idea of what the Bible says about giving. This is not, I'm not asking you to give any more or any less, okay? I'm going to teach you, teach you what the scriptures say. So it's not one of those, um, I have an agenda at the end because I want more of your money. I'm very clear about that. But you'll see why Jesus addresses this issue of giving because the priority is given in scripture, 
Now, to put this $46 billion into perspective, ask yourself, what could that money accomplish? Well, here we go. Just $10 billion would sponsor 20 million children a year. And we know that people are dying of hunger. Just $330 million would sponsor 150 indigenous missionaries in countries close to religious workers. $2.2 billion would triple the current funding of Bible translation, printing, and distribution. And $600 million would be enough to start eight Christian colleges in Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia. That's just $46 billion based on data that is 13 years old. Now, my question for us and myself, has any of this changed? And so I found an article in Tithely that dated December of 2020 that used a 2016 state of the plate survey, and here is what it revealed. That today, guess what? Most Christians don't tithe. Consider these statistics. This is the recent data. Only 10 to 25% of church members tithe. Only 5% of the United States population participates in tithing. And on average, Christians give 2.5% of their income, which is down from the 3.3% giving during the Great Depression. The generation that understood giving is in three places. The grave, retirement homes, and I can't remember where the other one is. But anyway, the data hasn't changed. You see that? It's basically the same. Has God blessed his children? Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Now, it's just that his children, to be blunt with everybody here this morning, and for those that are listening, they're just not generous in return. Our Lord addresses how the subjects of his kingdom exercise their religious practices in Matthew chapter 6. And of course, he begins with their giving. I believe there's a reason for that. One of the reasons why he begins is what William Barclay partially answers this question for us when he says this. And you can just listen. To the Jew, there were three great cardinal works of the religious life. I mentioned this two weeks ago, and it was... Three great pillars on which the good life was based. They're, they're giving, or almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And those are three issues that Jesus addresses in his Sermon on the Mount. They're giving, praying, and fasting. But I want to add this. And to the Jew, their almsgiving, or their giving, was the most sacred of all religious duties. How sacred it was may be seen from the fact that the Jews used the same word it's tzedakah, both for righteousness and giving. Do you know that? So to give alms and to be righteous were one and the same thing. To give alms was to gain merit in the sight of God and was even to win atonement and forgiveness for past sins. Well, well, why does Jesus talk about giving? Why was it so important to the Jews? Well, because it's given a significant priority in Scripture. Just consider, look at this information here. Consider the following. The baptism, there's 40 verses in the Bible about baptism. 275 verses on prayer, 
530 or 350 verses on faith, 650 on love. But look at those number on finances, wealth, and material possessions. We must also consider that the New Testament, they say, has 1,000 verses on giving. 19 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with giving. A tenth of the book of Matthew deals with stewardship and giving. And 15% of everything Jesus said related to money and possessions. And so it's very clear, this point right here. Clearly, Jesus drew a connection to a person's spiritual life and their relationship to their possessions. I hoped it wouldn't be that heavy in here this morning, but you are really quiet. But we get the idea now of why Jesus would address giving. And he's going to address this point even later about your possessions and your relationship with him later in the Sermon on the Mount. But let's talk about Old Testament giving. I think we can safely say now that clearly giving is on our Lord's heart. And before we tackle our text this morning, let's, let me give you some historical context of what Jesus' audience understood about giving. Because tithing in the Old Testament was the heart of Israel's economy. Since the government was a theocracy ruled by God, its taxes were tithes. And rather than just one tithe, how many were there? There were three tithes, okay? Leviticus, Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, and a tithe is 10%, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and is holy to the Lord. And of course, in Numbers 18.21 it says this, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel. That tithe I just read to you, it goes to the Levites as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. I'm a Levite, you're the Israelites. Does that make sense? That's where we get this model from. So what we're gonna see here is the first tithe is a tenth of all given to the Levites. The second tithe, as you can see, is in Deuteronomy 12, 11, and 18. Did I put that up there for you? Yeah. It says, then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything, I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. Okay? And then there was a, the second tithe. So a tenth of the remaining nine-tenths is to be used for the sacred meal in Jerusalem. And then finally, the third tithe, which was taken every third year for Levites, Strangers, orphans, and widows. It says, at the end of every three years, in Deuteronomy 14, 28, 29, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Okay? Now, let me do a little bit of math with you. And since I don't do math well, I wish Colette were here. I'd give her a joke with her about it. But here's the idea. This is what it looks like annually. Okay? 10% they would give. Oh, there she is. I didn't see you walk in your lane. Okay. Good. I'm glad she's here. So another 10% I just went over. And then every three years, so you go 20, 20, and then third year you give 30%. Average out a year. 
you're giving 23 and a third percent of, what, of your income to the Lord. Now let me put this into perspective. Our president is talking about raising taxes to cover the cost of all these stimulus checks and so on. And I, it, is it 30% tax rate? Is that what it is, roughly? The Jews at the time that they were under Rome, with their giving and the tax rate, they were giving 55% of their income. Okay, so if you think that America taxes you a lot, be thankful you didn't live during the time when Rome ruled. But that's the number, 23 and a third percent. That's what they understood, okay? So they clearly, 2% didn't enter their mind. I mean, they were obviously giving, if they were following the Lord, a tremendous amount of, of their income. And I wrote down here, let that number sink in for a moment. Because this brings back to remembrance the statistic that I just read to you. On average, Christians give 2.5% of their income, and that's only a portion of Christians. Now, what would it look like if, in average, or on average, Christians followed the Old Testament pattern for giving and gave 23% a third percent of their income each year? Well, you can only imagine. However, even the Jews, just to put your mind at ease, maybe, they even failed to meet God's standard, as Malachi tells us in what is perhaps the most famous Old Testament passage on the tithe. Turn to Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. This is the most famous passage, I believe, in the Old Testament, as I just read to you. It's also one of the most abused and misunderstood passages on the tithe in the entire Bible. You don't recall that I addressed this at length in 2017. I wouldn't expect you to remember what I said in 2017. I don't remember what I say in 2017. Malachi is, I'm, I'm basically just extemporously speaking to give you time to find Malachi because it takes forever to find Malachi in the Bible. Okay, are we there? Okay, good. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, for those that listened the first time. Okay. <laughs> I'm buying more time for everybody because I hear pages flipping back and forth. Verses 6 through 12 of chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? For effect, like you feel guilty, right? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, it will not, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord 
of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, a couple things real quick here. This is a promise given to the whole nation of Israel under the covenant established in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? And God views not bringing the full or the whole tithe into the storehouse, which was the temple treasury, as what? You're robbing him. Now, it's not written here, but if the tithe isn't being given, what are the Levites doing? No, what are the Levites doing? They're not ministering because they have to provide for their families, so they're doing something else than the work that they were called to do. And the blame isn't on them as they stand before God. It would be on the other Israelites for not obeying. Now, this is the only verse in the Bible, if my memory serves me correctly, where God allows people to test him. To test me, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so that's in it real briefly. That's what they understood. Did they still obey and give the full tithe? Well, obviously no, but they understood giving. Okay, and we know that they gave, as Jesus says in Matthew six, we just read, when you give. It's not if you give; it's when you give. So that's a little bit of background. And Jesus arrives on the scene with that background, and what does he find? Hypocritical giving. Listen to Matthew 23, 23 and 24. And you can go turn to Matthew 6, verses 2 through 4, while I read Matthew 23, but just listen to this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Just like he started in Matthew 6, 1. Talk about hypocrisy. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I mean... I would think Jesus would be canceled in today's culture, don't you think? <laughs> now the Pharisees, they would scrupulously observe the tithing law and even overdid it by giving to God a tenth of the small aromatic herbs they grew in their gardens and required their followers to do likewise. I mean, the law said nothing about tithing off of those spices. However, they neglected the actual requirements of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, they put human regulations over God's law. And you can do that in anything, including your giving. What they should have done was continue tithing while acting with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So, in God's eyes, they were blind, and their giving was hypocritical. So it's no coincidence that Jesus strikes at the heart of the matter in giving because it's all about the motive. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew 6, 2 through 4. You are there. You see those verses? 
We read it this morning. Now, if you look at Matthew 6, 2 through 4, there's actually some dispute as to if this actually happened. The people having trumpets blown before they would give. And let me explain what, what actually happened. Because it was hard to find sources to confirm that this, but nonetheless, Jesus creates a picture of a common scene during his brief stay on earth. It's a scene of a pompous, self-righteous Pharisee on his way to put money into the hands of the poor. Did you notice that? It wasn't a temple giving. It's your giving to the poor. Did you see that in the text? And the way this happened was the person went to the synagogues in the streets because that's where that giving to the poor occurred. And in front of him would march trumpeters, blowing the trumpet to fanfare to draw a crowd as if this person would say, come and get it for your great benefactor has arrived. And he passes out everything and he does it all for the sake of appearances. Now emphatically, and we know Jesus was emphatic about this next point, because he uses what phrase? Truly, I say to you. So he is making a point, and this is what we can't miss. They have received their reward in full. And again, I remind all of us what I said two weeks ago, we don't get paid twice. Our payment is either the temporary present praise of men or the eternal future reward from our Heavenly Father. You gotta make a choice. Now, let me give you another example of the hypocritical giving that he encountered. And we're gonna spend some time on this. Everyone turn to Luke 20, verse, starting in verse 45. Ron, and I'll say it again for you. Luke 20, starting in verse 45. <laughs> You know, it's always good to see Ron in here because he always sits here when he comes and sometimes he's able to make it, but it's always good to see him. Luke 20, verses 45 through chapter 21, verse 6. And I want to hammer something here. So just, I'm going to pull out the hammer of my personality. I'm going to be pretty direct and strong because it really angers me what's going on here. But let's look at this. So I'm warning you if I get a little animated. Verse 45, and while all the peoples were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, in chief seats in the synagogues, in places of honor at the banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. He looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all put out of their surplus, for, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. While well, some were talking about the temple and that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be one left, not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. Let me give you some historical context here. What is the treasury? Well, the treasury 
there was a court in the temple which Jesus was sitting, that's where he was sitting, and there was a very large open court in the temple area called the Court of the Women. Do you remember that at all? Kind of that, an outer court. There was an inner court where only men could go, but this is the outer court where you'd find the Gentiles and the women and, and the men. And so everyone could go there, men and women, and that's where obviously where Jesus would speak and teach because the larger crowd would, would be there. And Luke calls it the treasury, the treasury, because there was a section of it that the leaders had designed as the place where you give your money. Remember, it was required in, in the first tithe from Leviticus, I it was. But they had set up 13 trumpet-shaped horns in which people dropped their money, not unlike what we'd have out there in the back. And each of them had a sign on the bottom of it indicating exactly what that money was to be used for, whether it was an old shekel dues or new shekel dues, different types of offerings, the bird, wood, incense, gold, free will offering, etc. okay? And they're all labeled and people could would go by and they would, in this very open courtyard to the public, offer their gift. So the amount people gave was on display. It was just public, you could see. And some of the people, the hypocrites, would sound a trumpet to draw attention in this public court so the audience could see how much they were giving. As repulsive as that may be to you and I today, this is what was going on at the time of Jesus. Now when you first read this section of scripture, you're tempted to think that Jesus is, is commending the giving of the widow. Isn't that what we do? Man, she gave all that she had to live on. I feel so bad that I don't even give 10%. I wish I was more like the widow. Have you ever thought that? Ever felt guilty about your giving when you read that passage? But let's take a closer look at the text, and I believe you will arrive at a different interpretation. The reason why we started in, in chapter 20, the reason why we went past verse 4 and 21, is because the preceding and succeeding verses that surround the story of the widow and her gift lead us to the conclusion that the story is not about giving at all. Okay, but rather about the condemnation of wicked spiritual leaders and a corrupt religious system that is about to be destroyed. Do you see that in the context there? Verses five and six of chapter 21 tell of the physical destruction of the temple that was, of course, when was that gonna happen? In 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. And the verses, starting in chapter 20, verse 45, it is not a good sign, it's not good things that Jesus is saying about the religious leadership, is it? So these brief four verses in Luke 21, 1 through 4, are in the middle of a condemnation against a false religious system and a pronouncement of judgment on that system, a judgment, quite frankly, that is still going on today. So what do verses 21, 1 through 4 tell us about giving? Well, let me begin by answering that question by stating what Jesus doesn't say because we tend to look into the text and say, okay, I wish I was more like the widow. I wish I gave more. 
and we think in terms of percentages of how much I'm giving and what I should be giving and so on. I quoted you all those percentages up there, right? Did Jesus say anything about the widow's motive in giving in that passage? No. Did he say anything about the percentage she gave? No. He simply states what he observed. A poor widow and the rich were giving, and the poor widow gave more than everybody else there because she gave everything she had to live on, and Jesus only knew that because he had a supernatural insight into that situation. He's God. She gave out of her poverty while they gave out of their surplus. You with me so far? Okay. Jesus also didn't say that this widow is a model for giving, does he? He did not comment that because she gave all that she had to live on, that he loved her and that she was now in the kingdom of God. He did not invite the disciples to give everything they had to live on either. I mean, think about it. If that was good enough for a widow who never met Jesus, then surely it was good enough for the disciples who personally knew Jesus to give everything they have to live on. Now, it, seems, it would seem obvious that if there was one lesson that wouldn't need to be stated is that God expects you to give 100% of what you have, right? Isn't that the lesson? But Jesus makes none of those statements, does he? One thing I do know is this, that the Lord does not expect you to give 100% of what you have so that you have absolutely nothing left. If you did that, and I know people that have done that, that's ridiculous, it's irresponsible, it's foolish, and it is contradictory to other portions of scripture. How are you gonna provide for your family? So what is this section of scripture about? Well, remember earlier in the sermon that I said that the Jews equated giving with what? Righteousness, you understand you with me so far? So their giving is, is connected to their righteousness, to their standing with God. So to give was to gain merit in the sight of God and win atonement and forgiveness for past sins. So in context, one can only conclude that this woman was part of a false religious system that took the last two cents out of her hand on the pretense that this was necessary to please God, to purchase her salvation, and to bring her a blessing. Now, does that sound familiar? Is that going on today? Yes, it is. She was manipulated by a religious system that was corrupt. Any religion that is built on the back of the poor <laughs> that's a false religion. And I believe Jesus saw the situation like this, a false, corrupt religious system that took advantage of a misguided, poor, victimized widow. Because what did he say? They devour 
widows' houses. So this is not an illustration of heartfelt, sacrificial giving, now listen to me, that pleases the Lord. In fact, I believe this type of giving angers him because, folks, listen to me, God cares that your basic needs are met. This is why he tells you, don't worry, I know what you need, and I will provide for you. Look at the daily lilies of the field. I mean, and we've, we've, I've gone this before. You have everything you need, right? You're blessed. And he's given it to you. I mean, my goodness, 13 years ago, all the evangelical Christians were giving 2.5 or $2.7 trillion, where the amount is. He's giving. And he sees stuff like this that goes on today. It went on during this time of the widow, and it angers him, I believe. God is not interested in religions that take from the poor to enrich the wealthy. Yet it is still alive today. The Catholic Church has a long history of making money by selling what? Indulgences. We all know this. This is a historical fact. And that obviously, indulgences were a way to buy God's forgiveness for your sins. This practice was, you know, was eventually outlawed in 1567. But contemporary evangelists in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel take advantage of the naive. And this is the Protestant church, by the way. It's not the Catholic church. They take advantage, and they ask for financial donations that they call what? Seed faith. Give me your money, and God will multiply it back to you. And where do they get that idea of God multiplying it back to you? Malachi. A promise given to who? The nation of Israel. We have given, and I know other people that have given and gone beyond 10%, and God hasn't overflown them like you would read, because they think that the blessing that God's going to give you is a financial blessing, and they claim Malachi 3. Well, it doesn't. My grandfather gave and gave and gave. He was not wealthy. So I have a problem with these books that you can find in Christian bookstores that say, give and you will receive. All these stories of people that they, they finally started giving and God bless them and are now wealthy. No, it doesn't work that way. It may, but this is not an ironclad promise that if you start giving, you will then be given more and more and more and more and more. And I think God rejects that giving because what matters in giving? The motive. The motive. So, the giving of the widow, it's not a model for you to follow. Are you, am I clearing that with everybody? But there's still another type of hypocritical giving that Jesus had to correct, and we find this in Matthew 15. Everyone turn there. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. So you can see that the amount of time that I've spent on, I haven't really dived into the Matthew chapter 6, just explain what the Old Testament says about giving and what the environment Jesus walked into, and quite frankly, the same environment that we have today, this is what he finds in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. And some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. 
But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that I would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Looking at hypocritical giving again. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So once again, we find this false religious system that the Pharisees had created that violated the commandment of God. So back in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God had told the people to honor their father and mother. Honor their father and mother means it just boils down to making sure their needs are met. But to get around this commandment and to parade their self-righteousness and to buy salvation by the merit of God, instead of giving to their mother or father, they would say, oh, we're going to give that money to who? God, and they would put it in the temple treasury. And they would leave their parents what? Destitute. And so by the tradition of giving money to God that belonged to the needy, they violated the law of God. Is God pleased with that giving? No, he is not. Basic human needs come first with God before religious offerings. Let me say that again. Your basic human needs come first before you give to God's. Okay? God's law was never given to impoverish people, but to help them. Man was not made for the law, but the law was made for man. Now, let's get to what Jesus was starting to address, kingdom giving. How does a subject of his kingdom give? Well, first of all, let me say this, throw out percentages. It's not about percentages. Tithing is mentioned nine times in the New Testament, and each of these usages refers back to the Old Testament economy. Nowhere does the New Testament continue the tithe as a standard for Christian giving. This is what I spoke on four years ago. Instead, a new standard is clearly established. It's called what? Remember this? Grace giving. It replaces tithing under the new covenant established by Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is one of the central passages that teach this truth. Just listen to this verse. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace, there it is, of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, this passage tells us a lot of things. A couple of points are that believers, you give back to God based upon the grace of God, his grace. Even the poor gave according to their means. 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and that they are to excel in, in, in giving. So instead of giving one-tenth of your possessions, instead of giving 23 and a third percent of your possessions, the principle is give as the Lord has blessed you. There is no percentage. And this principle obviously allows for what? It's just greater freedom in your giving. You're not bound by a percentage. However, it also brings a far greater responsibility. The Christian's giving, now listen to me, the Christian's giving should now reflect how gracious God has been to him, or at least to the degree you understand how gracious God has been to you. And what standard then is set up? Unlimited. There's an unlimited standard. In giving as God has blessed you, however, it is important to remember Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Just listen to this. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. See, no percentages. Again, Jesus didn't mention a percentage. Paul doesn't mention any percentage. That's done with. Each man should give what he has decided to give in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So you give accordingly as well, or proportionately. Now I want to close just by giving you some kingdom giving principles to help you with your giving here. Number one, just give generously. and That's just the big point. That's really what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9 reminds us of the generosity of God. He's, let me make this point very, very clear. The reason why we, we give and we give generously and why there's no percentage, because a percentage would limit okay, how generous God has been to us in one sense. Because God's the first and foremost giver. The central act of our faith is an act of generosity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he became poor that we might be rich. So authentic Christianity, it, it, it compels us to be generous. You should look for opportunities to give, okay? If, there's a, if, you, if you're in a good position financially, or even if you're not, if you feel led, you give when the situation arises. Which is why I would sit there whenever we have missionaries here, you know, we've taken care of the Harris kids, we would just, you know, led by the Lord, we would just give, and we've taken care of their needs. The money is there, it's not a matter of not having it. So give generously, give cheerfully, because God loves a cheerful giver. Give proportionately. This is the, goes back to the whole idea with the widow. The widow should have given anything. That she's violating 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian church to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Simple. Proportional giving. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. 
So you give proportionally. And human nature, one, two, three, or four dollars a day, remember that? Human nature is, and the statistics show it, you're giving two and a half percent. And whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Now, Jesus watches what we give closely. We remember the story of the widow, right? But so does our Heavenly Father. Look at Matthew 6. Go turn there, Matthew 6, 2 through 4, if you're not there already. It says that, so your giving will be in secret, and your Father who what? He sees what is done in secret. He knows what you're giving. So God the Son is watching your giving, and God the Father is watching what you're giving. And obviously, motives for giving are important because it is possible to give with the wrong motive. Tariq Sigar reminded us all of this, that the greatest motive to give is love. But you can give everything you possess, even your own life, your body. If you aren't full of love, you gain nothing. Now Jesus hints at this, that the motive for giving is important when he says what? Do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, right? So conduct your affairs between yourselves and God, unknown to anyone else. I'm going to close with this funny story. I heard a story about a little seven-year-old girl. She came to church with her parents on a Sunday morning. She watched her parents singing songs. She sat and listened to the sermon and the pastor's prayer. She saw the offering go by and watched her parents put something in the basket. And then after church, as the family was driving home, the mother commented, I thought the music this morning was just awful. And the father added, and this sermon was, only, was not only too long, it was boring. Their little daughter in the back seat heard all this, and it really made her think. Finally, after a, a few moments of silence, she said, well, Mom and Dad, you've got to admit that it was a pretty good show for a dollar. I mean, they put a dollar in the offering. I had to end with a little humor this morning because it was a kind of a serious message, so. You're a little slow, but you got it. You're good. So obviously, just, you know, just give generously. My heart would be, I would go beyond the money that, that you give in this church is generous. Is Give of yourself. That's the thing. And that's what Paul said. That it's, it's the giving of yourself. It's why I'm here preaching to you. you know, give you your spirit, your body, your mind, and then your will, and, that's, and then your money, the Romans 12, 1 and 2. Give of yourself first to the Lord. That's what, as a pastor, I want to say. I trust that God will provide for us. He has. Okay? But give and to give generously. And do you understand now why Jesus addresses giving in his Sermon on the Mount, of all the topics that he could choose from, he narrows it down to those three for various reasons, but giving is so important because it, your spiritual life and your possessions, there is always a connection there. There's always a connection there. And we will sometimes come to you when there are needs. I think the only time we've come for a need is for a missionary need since I've been here. Um, but if there's a need, we'll let you know. Um, but we just trust God. I, I don't think our giving has really affected when we no longer do the giving because of COVID in here. We just put the box in the back. I don't think our giving has really gone down that much. Okay. 
but just excel in giving in all areas of your life, of yourself and, of course, of your resources. Amen? Amen. All right, let's close with a song, and then we'll uh, enjoy this growing cloudy day, it looks like. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your time with us and your presence here with us. And Lord, I pray that we would be known as a generous church and generous givers and cheerful givers who give proportionally, knowing that you watch our giving. Remind us of how gracious you've been to us and of a grateful heart we give generously. Amen.